Welcome to For a Living. I'm Daniel Lazar. For a Living explores working lives. It also honors the life's work of the oral historian and legendary Chicago radio host, Louis Studs Terkel. And in my hope to close the social distance, I'm shaping the space to hedge against our daily tsunami of celebrity navel-gazing and political pablum by giving voice to good, hard-working people who have no agenda here other than to explore what they do for a buck. And despite the fact that this very episode veers slightly askew from the usual mission of this here podcast, I'm still darn grateful that you tuned in. Now, how you ask, my curious listener, does this episode veer from the path? Well, first, thanks for asking. Mighty kind of you. So the whole premise of this show has always been to lend a microphone to working people for whom there just seems to be no space in the media landscape. Now, I've explored it before on this channel and tempted as I am to opine again here, let's just suffice it to say that for all sorts of reasons, the current marketplace of ideas just chooses to overlook the daily lived experiences of the overwhelming majority of people. And my podcast here seeks to, among other things, be a corrective to this media myopia. But in my hope to drive season 10 into the station with style, kind of on a whim, I invited the Thomas Jefferson on my uh, Mount Rushmore of interviewers to join me in conversation on For a Living. And uh, turns out he was quick to agree to join me, which I should confess here made me as giddy as it did make me anxious. So yeah, today's episode is same, same but different. Oh, hey, one way this episode is the same is that it's still supported by listeners like you and if this podcast is valuable to you, just remember, look, I, I can't do this thing without you. So if you've been listening to For a Living, if you've learned something and felt connected to our conversations, then let me just give you a chance to stay connected. Head over to patreon.com slash for a living. Again, that's patreon.com slash for a living. The link, as always, is in the show notes. All right. Well, friends, what follows is your boy here kind of living the dream. It's my conversation, nay, 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 my, my interview with award-winning journalist and host of The Gist, Mike Pesca. Pesca is in conversation with America's finest commentators. This, this line from Mark Twain to Walter Lippmann to Edward R. Murrow to George Carlin to John Stewart to Mike Pesca. My admiration for this fellow runs deep, and you will certainly soon see why. But I suppose that now is as good a time as any to tell you that one thing I really do admire about Mike Pesca is the generous introductions that he gives to his guests. His guest introductions are, hands down, the best in the business. So in a bit of a tip of the hat to Pesca, I gave him a warm welcome. I hope you'll indulge me. 
no turning back now, right? <laughs> All right, please enjoy my conversation with Mike Pesca. So more than two decades ago, when I was wrapping up my undergraduate program and I decided that I'd become a high school history teacher instead of going straight to grad school, uh, one of my mentors, I called him Captain, uh, he gave me a book. And uh, the cover had a shiny red apple on it, but instead of a stem, the apple had uh, a short fuse that had already been lit. Uh, the apple would soon be blown to bits. The book is Teaching as a Subversive Activity by Charles Weingartner and Neil Postman. And slid into the back of the book was a four-page speech that the captain had photocopied for me, along with his notes in the margin. The speech was delivered by Postman at a teacher's convention in Washington, D.C. in 1969. The Vietnam War had totally spiraled out of control. Nixon just assumed the presidency. And the speech is called Bullshit and the Art of Crap Detection. So Postman begins his address to these teachers by encouraging his audience to fine-tune what Hemingway called our built-in shockproof crap detectors. And then he elaborates, seeking to persuade the teachers, and here I'm quoting him, every day, in almost every way, People are exposed to more bullshit than is healthy for them to endure. And if we can help them to recognize this fact, they might turn away from it and toward language that might do them some earthly good. So then Postman goes on to delineate Postman's laws of navigating bullshit uh, before concluding that, quote, crap detection is something one does when he starts to become a certain type of person. Sensitivity to the phony uses of language requires knowledge of how to ask questions, how to validate answers, and certainly how to assess meanings. For there's no more precious environment than our language environment. And even if you know you'll be dead soon, that's worth protecting. My guest today has devoted much of his career to protecting our precious language environment. He's a model of that certain type of person that Postman insists we should all strive to be. He asks the most penetrating questions. He fearlessly and earnestly seeks meaning. And he may well have the best built-in shockproof crap detector in media today. He's an award-winning journalist, a book author, and a substacker, and he's host of the daily podcast, The Gist, which I believe is the longest running daily podcast out there. I respect him. I admire him. I'm downright giddy that he's here. Mike Pesco, welcome to For a Living. How do you describe what you do? I say it's the longest running news and news analysis podcast, but you could just say news because there are some that predate me, but no one was talking about the news every day in the year 2014, and I've been doing it since then. So that that's it. But that, you know, doesn't answer all the question. Well, how do you talk about the news? And I, I just am very complimented by how you described it through a bullshit detector. Although a lot of people who are bullshit purveyors will tell you they have bullshit detectors, and that is the next level bullshit meets bullshit and results in not squaring a negative, but in cubing a negative. <laughs> so talk to me a little bit 
about how you describe your work. Can you dial into that a little bit for me? Well, yeah, the gist is a 30 minute or so a day show. It has an interview in the middle of it. It has a spiel at the end, which ideally runs seven minutes plus or minus. Well, not so much minus, you know, seven to nine minutes, let's say. Yeah. The interview as to what constitutes a good gist interview, I tell new producers um, who might have many suggestions and it's not as if the suggestions aren't of worthy people to talk to or would make for interesting listens on other podcasts. But I like to say, all of the interviews have to have an argument, a thesis. It doesn't mean I have to bicker or argue with the subject, but an argument in the Greek sense of the word, the platonic sense of the word, that they are trying to say something. And then I attempt to pick apart, uh, not to not to gainsay or to um, deny, but really to delve into and to test what the argument is. And then since I'm working backwards, spiel, interview, the top of the show is a scene setter, a funny, quirky thing that happened in the news. It's usually short and should grab the listener. And that is how I developed the show uh, nine or 10 years ago, and it's stuck to that format ever since. For a while, we were having two interviews. It proved to be too much work, and each one of the interviews wasn't getting the attention it deserved. So that's where we landed on. Uh, top of the show, interview, spiel. I totally forgot about those double interview episodes. Slipped my mind entirely. I just did one uh, when we're speaking today. I just did one yesterday for the first time because the Trump indictment number three came down. So I wanted to have some reaction to that. But we had already committed ourselves to a two-parter with Simon Rich, who was writing about Code Da Vinci O2, which is an AI machine he was exposed to. So we were committed to the second half of one interview, and then we did the uh, Trump interview. And that was the first time in a long time, years, I think, we had two interviews. Yeah, I really liked the uh, first part of that Simon Rich interview. I'm looking forward to catching the second one, probably when I wake up tomorrow. So, Mike, you've, you've had a long and substantial career. Can you quick walk me along your path to the gist? I worked for a show called On the Media as um, my first paid job in radio. I had interned at uh, the New York Public Radio Station, WNYC. The show On the Media was produced from WNYC. The host back then was Alex Jones. And you're going to, if you're right, if right. Draw, hit the floor, not <laughs> that Alex Jones. There's an Alex Jones who won a Pulitzer Prize. He writes about newspapers and he won a Pulitzer Prize writing a history of the New York Times. So he he was sort of the early 90s version of a plugged-in media expert. It was a call-in show. It was very you know, old and creaky. But that was a paid show, and I did have an interest in the media, and I did interview there and land on the show. And quickly, the show was uh, torn apart because it just wasn't working to any degree. And rather than cancel it, the guy who took over uh, WMYC, a guy named Dean Capello, who for many years was their vice president of programming, astutely said, we need to change the format. We need to liven this up. Brian Lair, who hosts the WNYC call-in show, uh, that's named after him. He was a temporary fill-in host. I was, for a time, the only producer on that show. So I remember wheeling this uh, digital editing station. There were digital editing stations were first introduced in the late 90s. And we had one that we had to share between maybe three shows. And on Tuesdays, when it came time for On the Media to tape, I wheeled it from our offices on the 27th floor of the municipal building 
of Lower Manhattan to I think the 25th floor where we recorded and I wheeled it back. The, the ground was not smooth and I, it would, the cart would bump and I'm sure that just fragged the memory of the thing. So anyway, that's, <laughs> that's on the media. And then Brooke Gladstone and Bob Garfield took over and I became the producer. And then the producer at large, I started doing pieces for on the media from those pieces. I got hired to work for NPR for a show called Day to Day, their new foray into midday programming from day to day. A guy named JJ Sutherland hired me. Uh, now I was at NPR proper, and then I got switched over to the national desk. For seven years as part of the national desk, I did mostly sports, yeah, World Series, Super Bowls, etc. And then I started doing a sports podcast with Slate called Hang Up and Listen. I was one of three panelists. And the guy who ran Slate said, hey, you could do a daily show. And I said, I think I could do a daily show. I don't know if I want to do a daily show, <laughs> but he convinced me to. All right. So- First of all, thank you for quick walking us through that. I, you know, wasn't that quick. enjoy all of these shows. <laughs> and so it's kind of cool to hear you reflect on them. As things stand, you wear a couple of professional hats, but, but the gist seems to be at the center of it all. It's how I know you best. And it's kind of what I hope to focus in on, on our conversation today. So there's so much that I love about your show that I, I hardly know where to begin, but maybe we should start here. So like, I'm no expert, but I do know that if you're going to have an interview show, you, you need to have guests to interview. So tell me, what is your process of choosing guests? Well, we read through the book catalog, see who has a book out, and I read a, a lot of uh, op-eds and people who are writing. But I also listen to a lot of podcasts and think about guests uh, who I've heard on other podcasts or being talked about. So it's whoever flits across my consciousness who is making an interesting argument. Oh, that's 80% of it. And then 20% of it is there's a topic that I want to get at or an idea I want to get at. And then we cast it. Who would be the best person to talk about this? So right now, I'm very interested in the idea of uh, Donald Trump using a First Amendment defense against the indictment. And we talked about it a little, little yesterday, and I'm talking with David French next week because I think he's the best person who's a little bit skeptical of this indictment, would love Donald Trump to be found guilty of uh, many of his crimes or misdeeds, but is a little skeptical, and he's a pretty fierce defender of the First Amendment. So he'd be a great person yeah. to talk to, and that was more working backwards. All right, what's the topic? Who's the person? And then we book the person. Nice. And French is always a great podcast guest. Maybe a follow-up on that. Like, how do you book them? What does that process look like? I have two producers, uh, Joel and Corey, and they do their producing magic. They reach out. I know a lot of these people to begin with. Sometimes it's through, it's usually easier if it's through uh, a university or a publishing house or someplace where they have a dedicated PR person. And, you know, the heart, it's actually interesting, the hardest type of person to book is not the most famous person or the biggest name, though sometimes if the name gets so big, it becomes impossible. The hardest person to book for a segment that works is the person who's not at all famous and he might, she might not be expecting a call. We might not know how to get in touch. I had this idea since the uh, Florida curriculum about African-American studies was in the news, right. said, you know, there definitely is some Florida educator. Right now, there is someone who was a principal, who was a high school teacher, 
maybe she's retired, maybe she's uh, been in it for 20 years. And she's talking to her friend and she's saying, oh my God, I can't believe the national coverage. They don't even have to say it to each other. Like we all know how this is actually going to be introduced into the curriculum. And I don't know what that answer is, or maybe they they are saying, this is so bad for reasons that no one in the national news is talking about, or Kamala Harris gets it almost right. Whatever she's saying, that would be an interesting conversation to have. But to find that, who is that person, you know? I know who he is. Yeah. I have him okay. off mic. Good. I will tell you who he is, Good. 100%. All right. This is why I did this interview. It's a long roundabout way to get a guest, yes. I'm happy to give back. So a lot of the booking of guests goes to Joel and Corey, and, and we'll come back to them and your team. You know, since you brought it up, I kind of wonder, you have so many compelling guests on, uh, many of whom I've, I've never heard of before their gist appearance. Let me ask you, do you have a dream guest or two that you hope to reel in onto the gist one day? Yes, and they co-hosted a podcast together, uh, Obama and Springsteen. I have many questions ready to go for Springsteen. He has just not agreed to sit for them. Same with Obama. I think about Obama questions all the time. In addition to being able to get that Florida teacher on your podcast, I can get Obama for you, no problem. The dude's okay. been riding my coattails the whole time. I mean, <laughs> I come out with a podcast honoring studs, Turkle and working. He comes out with a four-part Netflix series about it. <laughs> I mean, he has calluses on his hands for grabbing so tight onto my coattails. Yeah. I'll see what I can do to, to get Barack on there. Did you listen to the Obama Springsteen podcast? You know, I tried, but oh, this right? is going to really ruin my chances of uh -huh. booking them. It was just seriously not compelling. There was no conflict, tension. Right. I did say <laughs> it was an excellent learning opportunity or confirming what I already knew, which is that these are literally the two people I, I would say most admire. I, I don't know if I have heroes. I mean, certainly my dad is, but I don't people who are famous, who I would consider heroes, they're talking to each other. And after yeah. episode one, I'm like, I can't listen anymore. <laughs> because that's not that's not what it takes to have a good podcast. It's not just a famous person saying something. It's saying something interesting for a reason. It's nice to hear you say it. I feel a lot better about my sort of tepid response to that podcast. I, I There was 0% there chance in my mind when that thing dropped that I was going to not make it through. And I made it through three of them. Did it get better? No. No. <laughs> no. Um, so I think our listeners are already kind of picking up. Like you're like a wicked clever cat. And and you could probably bullshit with the best of them. But as we said, you're already, you're allergic to bullshit. And and you do legit prep work for the gist. And, and it shows. You know, your, your listeners have come to expect this from you. you. Your guests seem grateful. So, Mike, maybe you could... Like, bring me behind the scenes a little bit. What does your research process look like in prepping for just interviews? Well, when someone's written a book, I read the whole book. I'm not saying I read every page of the book, but my eyes fall on every page. That's especially true for nonfiction. I, I don't often talk to fiction authors, but I do think at the last third of a book of fiction, you're not going to divulge it anyway. So it's maybe good for me to pick up a thing or two, but that's okay. I give myself a little <laughs> yeah. break as far as that goes. When there is someone who has done a few interviews, I will load up some past interviews that they've done, especially if they've done sort of 10-year-old talks where they were interviewed at San Francisco's Commonwealth Club or some other long-form venue. And then I often find things 
that they said that are interesting, but I also sometimes find, know what their answers are going to be or know what their regular moves are. And uh, I remember George Will has so much content out there, but definitely impressed him and bonded with him for knowing that he was going to cite a couple of, he has a couple of go-to phrases. He <laughs> denigrades football as saying it's uh, the most boring sport because it is a series of distinct actions punctuated by committee meetings. And so then I was able to, when he said that to me, come back at him with some of the deficits of baseball. And, you know, he thought that was very clever, but I'll give you the inside baseball on that. I knew what he was going to say beforehand. So like a defense lawyer, I was prepping for. And that wasn't to be an argument. That was, you know, a good bonding opportunity. So it's always good to put in the research and to um, show them that you've done the research, you've read the book. It's kind of sad, though it's probably not surprising to you how often they're so, a guest is so blown away by, quote, you actually read the book. Yes. Yes. I'm interviewing. I'm asking for an hour of your time. And the least I could do is read the book, right. let alone comprehend the book and think about the implications of the book. So yeah, I read the book. So a small question, like you and I had a quick phone call before we recorded today, just to create the contours of the conversation. Do you, or does somebody on your team do something similar with your upcoming guests? No. Uh, I don't believe in pre-interviews. I worked for NPR shows where they always did pre-interviews. And when hosting those shows, I found that they gave me nothing, really. Other people, there's a way to do pre-interviews where, especially if it's a live interview that you have seven minutes for, if you know that certain avenues are going to bear fruit and certain aren't, you know to go there. But you know, a better form of that Terry Gross will talk to someone for two and a half hours for a 30-minute interview. I won't do that, but that's that's superior. That's superior than leaving potential answers out because a producer has uh, done the pre-interview for you. Also, I have found when I'm hosting shows that rely on that, you know, you feel I've been a producer. I've been asked to do pre-interviews. I hand that information to the host. The host can do with it what they will. But there is a sort of producer feels badly if you don't get to their questions. And then I'm like, who am I doing this interview for? I can only ever do it for myself and the audience. But that has, in fact, I don't know, I think it causes a little more attention than it's worth. The fruit that it bears for me doesn't work. Yeah. I'm sure there are people out there, household name people who absolutely rely on the pre-interviews. Um, you know, I know that comedy shows or the late night hosts will always do a pre-interview to see what's funny. What do you think? What do you think Jay will think is funny? What do you think Dave, Conan, Jimmy, what do you think they will think is funny? And then they work it out beforehand. But is that really an interview where you're after answers? That's more of a crafting a, a performance, a, pro, a, a kind of um, constructed performance. I don't love pre-interviews. Yeah, I feel, yeah. As I said, you know, I do it for two reasons, right? Mostly because you know, most of my guests don't have any podcast experience. So just to maybe calm their nerves and to help them to kind of like wrap their head around the process. And then in the other case is when I feel like I'm going to be really nervous. Like I wanted to have a pre-interview with you just so I could get some of my yayas out and fanboy out for a second so that we could hit the ground running here. So thanks for countenancing my my approach. I do appreciate that. Yeah, the yaya excavation project. Uh -huh, I, uh -huh. I know people who are very put off by the phrase yayas. 
Really? Yeah, it's like moist to them. Oh. oh yeah, whatever, whatever. Get whatever. However, you get your yayas out. I know it's a Rolling Stones album, but it uh, it strikes a certain kind of ear as just much more offensive than I think is meant to. And to get them out, to think that we have like the humor is in the body, to think that we have yayas within us, and then we're to vent them uh-huh. to be splenetic and to allow our yayas to be loosed upon the world like Cassandra in her box. I don't know. Well, and also problematically, like, do we have a finite number of yayas yeah. that we need to excavate? Yeah. It's like, it's like uh, women are born with a set number of eggs and that's it. Yeah. I believe so. I also believe the same with strikes in bowling. If you bowl some strikes in the warm up, that's it. That's it. You've tapped into your set finite amount of strikes that you're assigned on this earth. So this is what I tune into the gist for. That's it. This banter like this. So I've listened to like a lot of gist interviews, not just for conversations about yayas and strikes. Mm-hmm. I've, I've listened to hundreds. I mean, I did the math. I mean, it might be a thousand. And oftentimes I'm impressed with the guest. And sometimes you know I want more. So, you know, at times I'll buy their book or I'll watch their show. And um, sometimes I'll just follow them on to another podcast. And a lot of the time, I'm not going to hazard a percentage here, but not infrequently, I am much, much less impressed with that guest when I listen to them on another podcast. Now, you could say, yeah, but Daniel, this, you know, is like kind of like a first date thing. And there's nothing like the first date, the sheen wears off and, 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 and so on. But legit, it's my experience that you clearly bring out the best in your guests. It's a talent of yours. And my question is, how do you do that? Like, what exactly do you, Mike Pesca, do to bring out the best in your interviewees? You've probably done it the other way, though, right? You heard someone on another show, and then you heard them on The Gist. That's happened, right? Yes. Okay, so give me your assessment. It's the same thing? The Gist interview is usually better? My hypothesis stands. Okay. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, Well... I would think that I'm at this for 10 years because I'm at least in the, I don't know, highest 20th percentile and might I say the highest decile of interviewers. Also, most of my competition in the beginning was NPR and NPR or or those sort of interviews. And NPR was mostly not going to go as long, not going to go as in-depth, going to have several dozen resets and was going to operate with the idea that, you know, it would be a crime. It would be the worst thing if you left behind your least astute listener. I mean, this is how NPR, much of broadcasting will think about, okay, we don't want to leave anyone behind. So what we have to do is definitely not dumb it down, but whenever we say Bono, we have to say and tell the audience, he's the lead singer of U2. I call it Bono lead singer of U2 disease. So once you're doing that, and once you're defining terms that I know my audience either will know and understand, or if they don't, will say, okay, I have to match Mike's level of knowledge there. It's freeing. It allows for a better conversation. After the period when most of my competition was NPR, then it became most of my competition was other podcasts. And quite frankly, since there is no barrier to entry, there's not a lot of skill among many podcast interviewers. The best the best have that level of skill. And I've listened to people on other podcaster shows. And I said, ooh, that was a better interview than I did. 
Doesn't happen a lot. I'm very egotistical. Plus, part of what I define makes for a good interview is the questions I'm curious about. So naturally, I'm going to think my interview is better because it was about the things that I was literally interested about. But there are (laughs) occasions. I'll tell you one that happened. Derek Thompson does a show called Plain English, and he did a segment that was the same as the one I did. And I said to myself, Derek Thompson just did that segment better. And then of course, all the excuses flooded in. Oh, he has a bigger staff. He only does a couple a week. It doesn't matter. Derek Thompson did a better (laughs) either interview or segment than I did. So kudos to him. He won that round. You win that round, Thompson. Yeah. Did you happen to read his new book about work? No. Is it out yet? I don't know, actually. I read the Atlantic piece and I'm excited to see what this all turns out to be as someone who's deeply interested in work. Um, I'm interested in Derek Thompson. He seems to have his hand in a lot of different pots. Clever guy. It's okay to get beat out once by Derek Thompson. Just don't make a habit out of it, Pesca. I'm looking it up. It's, it's, it's a solo job. I don't know why I, f- I thought he co-wrote it. On work, meaning, and identity. Wow. Big, big stuff. Yeah, my wheelhouse. I, I want to ask more about this approach that you have to bring out the best in, in your guests, because I, I have interest in this, as you might imagine. And, and it seems to me that one thing you do to bring out the best from your guests is just to be uh, generous. Like you're a uniquely generous conversationalist. I kind of wonder how much of this is just part of your character versus how much of that is a skill that you work on. And maybe this is my question, like to the extent to which it is a skill you work on, can you talk a bit about the work that you do to hone your conversational approach? Do you mean by generous that I'm not looking to score, that I let them have the good lines, that I don't interrupt? Tell me what you mean by this. I mean, all of that. I mean, setting them up. I mean, you know, um, having a sense of humor and making them feel welcome, mm-hmm. uh, being very precise with your questions. All of these things require work and skill. And I'm hoping I can get you to talk about the work that you do to create this generous conversational environment. Yeah. So I think about my audience and I think about what they need. Um, and what they need in that segment is to hear from the guest and to hear the guest at their best. But I also know that the audience is there, if not for me, then through me. So I'm also going to be the audience surrogate, which can never mean to be overbearing or to dominate the guest. And plus, it doesn't even work. It doesn't, it's, it's a taped interview. There's no such thing as, you know, my owning a guest or embarrassing a guest. I want the guest to always and 100% put out their best arguments, and then maybe I'll have counter arguments, or maybe I'll just amplify. So the answer is, apart from natural inclinations, and apart from the reps of 10 years of doing that, can't be understated, it's to know that what you're perceiving as generous is also that I'm anticipating what the audience would want. And so you're saying, ooh, I'm being serviced, right? I'm being serviced by this interview. It's hitting exactly my curiosity centers. You do train yourself a little bit. You don't have to be, I don't have to be the center of attention during an interview because I have those other segments on my show to do that. And I always let the guests go long and finish their points because it's edited. So there's no point to ever cutting anyone off. And that plays as that's part of what plays is generosity. 
Yeah. Okay. I, I that makes a lot of sense to me. I will be listening to the gist with that in, in mind now as well. It's like this this audience servicing. Right. So I did an inter. I'll give you an example. I did an interview the other day where I redirected the guest to answer the question, not to sidestep the question. Of course, I didn't do this saying answer the question. Damn it! But it was about the preponderance of um, intersex traits, and she's uh, she's a memoir memoirist and activist, and you know she was asserting that. It's like 1.7% of the population. So I talked about why it maybe should only be considered 0.2%. She kind of changed the terms of the debate in a way that would be normally skillful as a rhetorician. But I had to say, because I'm thinking of the audience, my smart audience is going to know that she didn't really answer the question. So I said, okay, I totally understand what you're saying. And you raise good points in that part of the answer. But the original question was, restated the question, directed her to it. And that's all because of audience service. Now, sometimes the audience will say, oh, you should have nailed him on A, B, or C, or you shouldn't have let her off the hook on X, Y, or Z. And nine times out of 10, I pursued it longer than uh, you hear in the interview and it didn't go anywhere or it was a replay of the same evasion. And so I don't play that for the audience because even though it might be satisfying to the people who are itching for that follow-up question, I almost always do ask the follow-up question and it's the same sort of unsatisfactory answer as the first time. All of that, I think, factors into what you're perceiving and hearing is generosity. Right on. And I hope to get back to the edit because I'm interested in that. But before we do, I I should note for our listeners that the tagline of the gist is that, uh, this is how it's written on the website at least, Uh, it says, Pesca challenges himself and his audience in a responsively provocative style and gets beyond rigidity and dogma. And and I, for one, think you you consistently achieve that ambition. I want to ask you about this, and, and maybe we should start here. What does responsibly provocative mean to you? You kind of touched on that when you were talking about this guest, but I'm really interested in this this term, uh, responsibly provocative. Yeah. So if you veer too much on the provocative, it's something like name calling or badgering or you know trying to light up the pleasure centers of maybe some of the more um, rabid people in the audience, but that's not responsible. If you veer too much on, well, I'm going to be responsible, you never challenge anyone. So responsibly provocative. I don't want to say I'm a provocateur. I try not to be a provocateur. But the whole point is to, I think, get somewhere and somewhere beyond things like the talking points or to get beyond answers that don't at least appeal to me as the most rigidly logical. So I'll always probe and explore, but I hope, I I book a lot of people who, you know, maybe not about them, but they say that they value that in general. And so that's a reason they come on the show. I like it when, you know, you probe about these other areas. And so therefore I will probe about your area, never trying to make someone feel uncomfortable. Another thing is, you know, I'm just thinking of this guest that I talk about, uh, her intersex experience. My point wasn't to present to her uh, the illogic of her position, uh, which I I think that it wasn't necessarily illogical. My point wasn't to catch her out being hypocritical. My point was to actually say that there are contradictions within what you're saying, 
How do you resolve them? And I, before the interview, I even said to myself, there is a path to resolve them. You know, you could say, well, I am uh, trying to state the prevalence of this condition as prominently as possible because I know that that will activate in people some sort of empathy or open their eyes. And so I give myself more latitude to you know, have an expansive definition. I'd say to myself, that's a great answer. She gave, she gave an answer close to that, which is I would defend how I define the percentage. You're absolutely right that we should be kind and uh, extend rights to intersex people, even if the situation only occurs at 0.2, not 1.7%. But I really wanted to hear her answer. The point wasn't, haha, got you. There is no good answer. I thought there could be good answers. And I was wondering which way she'd go or what she'd take. And so she impressed me with the quality of her answer. And that's what I want. I want someone to say that because oftentimes when the opposite happens and there is no good answer, you might think that the audience is like, yeah, you got them. This person I didn't agree with was exposed to be an idiot. But actually, I find that people don't really enjoy spending time within podcasts where the goal is that your enemy has been shown to be an idiot. It kind of curdles the experience overall. And podcasts where oftentimes or or shows where there is someone who is beat up on, like that person, sometimes clips of the person are played or little segments are played of short statements the person says. But anytime you spend a long time with a host and a person, you're going to find the humanity in the person and you actually don't want the other person to just be consistently exposed as either a hypocrite or illogical. It's not. It's something you th- the, the audience might think they want, but they really don't. Nice. You know, when I was thinking about this responsibly provocative style that you're pursuing, I, I had that guest in mind. I was also thinking about some other recent GIST episodes and I want to draw your attention to them to, to get you to reflect a bit on this. Is that okay with you? Yeah, that'd be fun. So a couple of months ago, I was on a flight to the West Coast, and I was listening to this interview you had with Virginia Soul Smith. Um, for those who don't know, she's a leading voice for the fat acceptance movement. Um, she's certainly well-intended and, and I think earnest. And she puts herself at the center of this controversy over fat acceptance. And you really provoked her, responsibly so. And I felt like maybe you pulled a few punches in your effort towards responsibility. You you provoked her, but you didn't push too assertively or, or aggressively. But it felt like you wanted to. And, and also, like another recent episode, you had a provocative disagreement with um, uh, Dwight from The Office, Rain, <laughs> Rain Wilson. Yeah. And y'all disagreed over what happiness is and how it can be achieved. So I should probably dial into a question here. Like, like you interview people and you offer a space for them to share their ideas, to, to publicize their work. And, and you work hard to create this safe but challenging space. I, I guess, Mike, what I want to know is what your calculations look like. Like, how do you decide to challenge guests or to let an idea slide by that you find to be misguided or unfounded or 
just plain bullshit. Yeah. So those were two very different set of circumstances. Rain Wilson, I didn't think that I was going to disagree with him as much as I did. But Virginia Soul Smith, I knew I was going to because I booked her because uh, I read her book. I heard her on other podcasts and she seemed to, I shouldn't say she seemed to, she very much operated within a space where she's never been challenged on her central assertions or if she has, I mean, how she would say it is society every day challenges her. So she puts out her content, her Substack. She goes on, um, she has a podcast. She goes on podcasts like maintenance phase and they're part of the fat liberation movement. So it's not just fat acceptance, the fat liberation movement and the fat liberation movement I'm with in terms of the stigma about fat people is there is bad. Much of the animosity we have towards fat or much of all of the animosity and fear of fatness is bad. A lot of what has been purported to be uh, medical research actually doesn't hold up. BMI as a calculation is really, really, really a rough calculation. Yes, 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 and yes. And then, and I think this is a hallmark of liberation organizations or movements where you want no one to outflank you to the left or to the right. Um, she goes on and says, as though the fat liberation movement, there is no evidence that any amount of being overweight is bad for you. And not only does she lose me, it is just demonstrably wrong. It is as demonstrably wrong as any um, denial of vaccine efficacy or COVID claims or flat earth movement. And she uses, and I heard, this is the research, I know what she would do, which is talk about it's, there's never been demonstrated to be a cause. There is at best a correlation between very high BMI, and then I knew she was going to spend a lot of time denigrating BMI. Uh, and so I immediately stipulated BMI is an extremely rough approximation. If we could talk about body fat percentage, that would be much more accurate. It's just that people don't have calipers or a way to calculate that readily. But let's just take people who the medical establishment calls extremely obese, which I know is not a phrase you like. See that this is part of it, that it's very even hard to get to um, a conflicting question because all the terms are rebutted, all the shared base of knowledge is questioned. So I tried to lay all the groundwork there, acknowledging that BMI is extremely imperfect, acknowledging that obesity is a phrase that you don't like. But if we could focus on people who, if we knew, had a body fat percentage of above 50, here are the correlations. And so I read her from the, the most uh, credible texts. And it was very close to the correlations between cigarettes and lung cancer. And so just as you wouldn't come on a show, I mean, maybe you would if you're the uh, cigarette or cancer liberation people, maybe you would assert that cigarette smoking doesn't cause cancer. You know, that's been overstated. There's at best a correlation. Um, I would have to challenge you. She was doing the same with being extremely overweight. So that's how that one worked. I knew what was going to happen. I knew what was what she was going to say. I read her book. I underlined the parts that I thought were statements that she couldn't back up. And I wanted to hear how she would back it up. And I don't know. What did you think? Did she avail herself well? Not particularly, However, uh, I haven't read her book. I guess what I'm more interested in is sort of the process that you're going through in those conversations. Like you, you care about the issue. You definitely gave her a fair hearing. 
You listened really closely. You didn't cut her off. You weren't assertive. You certainly weren't aggressive. It just seems like a really hard needle to thread. Yeah, and a lot of it is achieved in the editing. And so I worked with my editor more for that. I work with my producer more for that than I have any interview in a year. I usually let the producers, you know, do their cut and then I'll listen to it and I'll say, that's good, almost always. But on this one, I said, give me the raw tape, give me the cut that you made. We'll see if anything needs to go in. And I also said, this is going to be a full show. I don't want to break it up into two parts. So that was very buzzword intentional. But yeah, that was a little bit um, different from how I did Rain, which was he was on the show. We were talking about the geography of bliss, his Peacock show. I'm friendly with the guy who wrote the uh, nonfiction book that it's based on. And then I just think he was, yeah, I did a lot of research as I watched the show. He was making some assertions about happiness that seemed not to be particularly backed up with the research. At times, he wanted to hold uh, the project out as very research-based, but at other times, it was more just um, kind of vibes and feel-based. So I questioned him on this. I, By the way, I, I had only heard Rain Wilson do kind of fun interviews about his current show or, or being Dwight Schrute. I have since heard him on Bill Maher's podcast, and I said, ooh, I wonder how this is going to go. Yeah. And it was really contentious. I think that, and to his credit, he seemed to like it, that Rain Wilson does not mind mixing it up with people who disagree with him. So that's great. I think that works. Yeah. Yeah. He really seemed to like it a lot. Um, you know, I, just one more. I was just dawning on me as you were talking. Like, you had Leon Nafok mm. on the gist rather recently. He's been on before. Uh I'm a fan of his. He's a friend of yours. And you pretty openly disagreed with him also, but I don't really want to talk about that disagreement. Although I would urge our listeners to listen to it. So I'll link to it in the show notes. So what I remember from that podcast most is you introduced Leon as the best storytelling podcaster out there right now. Easy to agree with you there. So I will. But storytellers aside... I wonder who Mike Pesca thinks are the best podcast interviewers working right now. Like, I know I got my Mount Rushmore of interviewers. Pesca, who's on your Mount Rushmore? Colin McEnroe has the best radio show in America. He, the Colin McEnroe Show, call-in, recurring segments. Monday's a full call-in show. Friday is a, a culture show called The Nose. He's just fantastic. He really, he really is great. Um, I'm just looking about what are my most frequently listened to podcasts. I have some that are, uh, in the sports category. So I don't know if, uh, I would call them the greatest interview podcast. I am. Well, I have liked, uh, Bill Maher's club random. I, yeah, I would say it's definitely not up there. I definitely like Mark Marin. He does a good job for in-depth, uh, discussion. Coleman Hughes. I've been listening to his podcast a lot. He too does an excellent job. Let's see who's up there as an interview podcast. Oh, um, Dan Savage's interviews are great. Yes. Just great. I did a, I did a little experiment where there was the same guest on my podcast, Coleman's podcast, and Andrew Sullivan's podcast. It was Gene Twenge, uh -huh. who wrote a book about generations. Uh -huh. And I had in my head, I did a podcast off who did the best. And I would say that, uh, for my show, I did the best. And for long form, I think Coleman did a lot better than 
uh, the Dish Cast, which is Andrew Sullivan's show, which I like. I wrote about Gene Twangy on my little Substack. What'd you say? Uh, yeah, I'll send it to you. You know who's great too? Larry Wilmore. I think that Larry Wilmore and I have share a lot of the same attributes, curiosity. He will do podcasts where he very much disagrees with guests. And sometimes I even wonder how much they realize he disagrees with them. Like he had on Kamau Bell, who has a CNN show, and Kamau Bell and he disagreed about defund the police. And Bell's position shifted. Well, it could mean more social services. It could mean de-emphasizing the militarization of police. And 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 Wilmore, you know, made Kamau Bell stick to standard definitions. And so I really like that. I think he does a good job. I'll check out the Larry Wilmore podcast and. To those listening to this, I will link to all of those in the show notes. You can put your pens away. So I hope I didn't bore you with my Mount Rushmore question. I was just curious. That was good. Who's on yours? Uh, oh, um, Mark Marin is the one we definitely have in common. Yes. Um, Ezra Klein. I really like the Ezra Klein show. As an interviewer, I really appreciate Ezra Klein's patience. I like his cadence. I think he asks great questions, definitely does his research. Um, I hate to say it, pal, you're on there. You're my Thomas Jefferson on the Mount Rushmore. Oh, Jefferson. Great. The, the most problematic <laughs> one. Great. Well, and appropriately so. Uh -huh. um, and the fourth, yeah, I mean, listen, as long as she's got one foot in the water, it's going to be Terry Gross. Oh yeah. She's how great. And how about be? conversations like, with Tyler? You ever listen to Tyler Cowan? I have. Uh, just one. It's I, like I subscribe to it. You know, got to make time. Got to make time. Right. Um, people say great things about the Colin McEnroe show like you did. So Bill Simmons does a great job, too. You know, it depends if where you are with the guest. But he has done some great, great interviews. Yeah, for sure. It's all about the synergy. I mean, yeah, I, I, I would be embarrassed to tell you some of the podcasts I listen to. It's just a matter of like how I imagine the guest and the host will click. Mm -hmm. So um, thanks for countenancing the, the Mount Rushmore question. I, I have what might be construed as a boring semantic question for you, just kind of thinking about Mark Maron, because we both have him on our Mount Rushmore for now, at least. You could judge if it's a boring question. So like Mark Maron, I'm not entirely comfortable calling what I do an interview program. I mean, it is, and it isn't. I prefer to call it a conversation. I like a little back and forth, but my podcast is is mostly an interview. I don't provoke too much responsibly or otherwise. Despite this, I would like to see my thing more as a conversation than an interview, even though it's it's not, it's not. But what you do, you call an interview, which it is, it is. But I come to the gist for you and, and for your side of the conversation, not just as a questioner, but as a conversation partner. So, okay, maybe we should do this. Um, let's, let's take a moment, you and I, Mike, to like imagine what the Venn diagram looks like. You know, interview is the left circle, conversation is the right. We kind of see what's in the middle there. Do you see the gist more as a conversation podcast or more as an interview podcast? Oh, it's more of an interview podcast because just you could 
tell if it's an interview or a conversation by looking at a transcript and circling or highlighting all the question marks and seeing how many question marks there are and where the question marks emanate from. So I'm asking questions. That's, that's an interview. And by the way, Mark Marin is mostly doing an interview. There are great moments in interviews where there's yes ending and the host uh, sparks a revelation from the guest and the guest sparks an insight from the host and they're sparking going back and forth. But sometimes people will take what clearly is an interview and try to not gussy it up, but claim it's a little bit more or better than an interview. It's a conversation, (laughs) but... I don't. I don't see any shame or um, pejorative in just saying it's an interview. It's a great interview. Uh, I get information from interviews, and I want information as much as I want entertainment. Yeah, I think the idea is, and I'm not to you know refute what you're saying. I think the idea behind it, and it's not just semantic, is that like an interview is something I'm doing like to you. I'm interviewing you, and a conversation is something we're we're creating together. But your answer stands. I've kind of struggled in some small way, again, because I'm very easily influenced and I've heard Mark Marin struggle with it. So I feel like if Mark's struggling, I should struggle too, which is basically the tagline of Marin's podcast. Um, <laughs> it's not a, that interesting. We can <laughs> easily move on from it. I wonder why. I think, I don't know, maybe there's something in the psychology of Mark Marin where he struggles because to claim that it is an interview puts him in a category that he feels, you know, um, unqualified for. So he thinks of Terry Gross as an interviewer. He says to himself, he's not as good as Terry Gross. He's just having a conversation. But when you, when you do, when you watch a bunch of someone's movies and think of things you want to ask the person, and then the person comes and you ask them many questions about their movies, and the person doesn't know a thing about you, sir, you are doing an interview. <laughs> All right, cool. Nailed it. Um, okay, so we will call it an interview. And um, uh, I guess... Here's one thing I'm kind of concerned about. Like in our age of disconnection, it, it seems to me that, you know, interview or conversation, you, you're kind of a model of how to connect to people. Let me ask you this, Mike Pesca. What have you learned about how to connect to people and, and to empathically engage with them that you might be able to share with my listeners many of whom feel anxious and disconnected these days. Well, what I learned, and this is probably mostly based on my assumptions going in or the universal mistake to think that other people think like you, I assumed um, from early on that my interview subjects would enjoy the back and forth as much as I did and would not feel defensive, would not feel that if they got the worst of it, that it was um, some sort of failure that implicated their worth or their ego, but that was incorrect. So you have to let people have their victories. There was a show I did where I was pretty unsatisfied with the answers that my interview E was giving. And then after the show, I did sort of a rebuttal to the central thesis, which is, has feminism made strides or were things better for women in the 90s than they were the 80s? And to me, the answer was, of course. And she didn't want to engage in the question because she said, I wrote a book about the 80s, not the 90s. And I said, if you wrote about a book about the Civil War, but then 
you totally ignored Reconstruction. Could we trust you as the great authority on the Civil War? Anyway, listeners, some listeners hated it. They thought that I was calling her out, and I realized it just was that was ungenerous. That was ungenerous of me. I was never going to tag an interview with a spiel that served as a rebuttal to that interview, especially with if it wasn't some situation where I knew the guest could take it, was prominent, was game, that sort of thing. So yeah. that's one thing. That's definitely one thing I've learned. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this then. Like when you don't seem to connect to people so well, or when you connect so well that the conversation goes on too long, uh, there's always the edit. Now, you said that you're not too involved in the editing process. You said something like 20% of the time you have your hands on it. Could I get you to talk about the gist's approach to editing interviews? Yes, right after I'm done with the interview. So it could go 30 minutes to a half hour. That 30 minutes, yeah, big range there. Could go 30 <laughs> minutes, could go maybe 40 minutes, but I'd have done something wrong if an interview goes 40 minutes. So a book someone will, will normally talk for 20-ish minutes up to a half hour. And I just don't want to give the choices that are too hard. But if something's going great, I will go longer. And there's always the possibility that it could be a two-part interview or we're doing these bonus interviews for subscribers. And, um, and right after the interview, I will talk with uh, whoever was the producer who's going to edit it. And I say, I'll say, what do you think? I'll, I'll uh, solicit the answers. And I said, if you're looking for a place to cut, which they almost always are, I will highlight this thing or the other thing. And their minds will almost always be there. It's pretty obvious which fruit bore uh, was the least ripe of uh, all the ripening fruit. So yeah, I'll do a little chat in general. Here's what to cut. And then the cut will uh, show up the day the interview airs, or if it's something complex we have to talk about the day before. And then I ask for them to put all the interviews that they cut in double speed because I listen to everything in double speed or higher. It's the only way I can get to all this content I get. So I'll listen to it in double speed and sometimes make a note. But often I'll just say, great. Huh. Quick question. Does it bother you in any way, shape or form if your listeners listen to you at double speed? No, I prefer it. And people say, I can't do it. I say, yes, you can. You don't even know how fast people actually talk. I don't understand why this is true evolutionarily, but we, we listen and have the capacity to listen twice as fast as we talk. People will say, well, how do you listen to comedy podcasts in double speed? Doesn't it ruin the timing? No, it makes everyone seem so much quicker. <laughs> the only podcasts that don't work in double speed are music podcasts. So I'll listen to my friend Chris Malamphy's podcast. I can't yes. really do it in double speed. What I do is since my wife gets agitated by things that are in double speed, but I have to tell you, I sneak in 1.2 speed. I always sneak it in a little fast and I'm trying to build it up so that she doesn't even know it. And then I'll say, honey, we've been in 1.4 speed this whole time. But what I'll do is I'll save many of the music podcasts to listen to with her in the car. Since I can't listen to them in double speed anyway, those are many of the podcasts I'll listen to them or with the kids. Nice. I mean, the only reason I ask is because I have had a dozen people be like, I know I shouldn't tell you this. This is probably going to drive you nuts, but... I listen to your podcast at two times speed. And I'm like, that's fine. My podcast is really long and there's nothing I'm going to do about that. So you might as well speed it up. It makes sense to me. So you brought up your, your wife, uh, who happens to be on your team over at The Gist. At the end of each episode, you credit your team, Joel Patterson, Corey Wara, 
Michelle Hunter Pesca. Let's talk about your team, man. Like maybe we could start with a Cliff's Notes version of the Genesis story. Like how did your team come together? Well, after I left Slate, I needed to assemble a team, and Joel was someone I worked with uh, as a fill-in producer while I was with Slate, and we were in contact, and he just you know, pledged his services to me and like told me he believes in me, and he's a really great producer, so I was very happy to have him. Then we advertised for other producers, and we had a couple really strong candidates, but man, I love this kid, Corey. He has just the best attitude. He said something in the interviews, which was, my job is to make the host look good, period, full stop. That is my job. As the host, I like that. <laughs> You're hired, kid. Yeah. But yeah. He, is, he is the best. And being able to work remotely, if I had to do this with two New Yorkers, neither one would be able to work with me. One lives in Media, Pennsylvania. The other used to live in uh, Tulsa. Now he lives outside of Peoria. So that's the team. And then Michelle comes in doing the uh, Michelle things that I've credited her for everything from being in charge of uh, animal husbandry to uh, plushy toy conservation to audience <laughs> outreach to mold abatement. I mean, there's nothing she can do. <laughs> Your, your podcast is one of the few that I will really listen to the 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 bitter end. I shouldn't say bitter because it's not bitter at all. It's this very sweet end that you have um, giving credit and, and having good spirits and good vibes all the way through the closing credits. Kudos to you, Mike Pesca. So, okay, with the, the support of this team, you're often tackling difficult issues head on. And... I got to say, it sure seems like you're having a hell of a good time doing it. I hope you are, but I imagine that it's not all fun all day long. I kind of hope your answer is an unequivocal and enthusiastic yes, but, you know, unlike Tom Cruise, I can handle the truth. <laughs> so, Mike, are you having as much fun as it seems like you're having? Yeah, the actual hours where I'm working on the show, I like it. I I would be I I think I would be reading or imbibing most of this stuff anyway. And so in between the hours of uh 8:30 and 5:30, things are going great. It's the off hours where sometimes like this weekend there are books I want to read, but when the books you want to read are also the books you have to read, it gets a little, yeah. and the Sunday shows, you know, I will listen to all of them. I will listen to them at two and a half speed, but let's say I'm doing something else and it's seven o'clock on a Sunday. And then I say, all right, I guess I'll be going to the gym early on a Monday and I'll have to crank uh, up all these uh, Sunday shows. That's an obligation. Yeah, for sure. So, one thing that you seem like you're having fun doing is chatting with your listeners on like all sorts of platforms, you know, Twitter, Reddit, Substack, I don't know, it probably goes on. Let me ask you this. What's the promise and what's the peril of audience engagement as you pursue it? You don't want to be, you don't want to be captured by the audience. Um, you don't want to be trapped by what their expectations are. You don't want to veer so much in the other direction either. Oh, they think I'm going to say this. I'm definitely going to surprise them by saying that. You don't want to overinterpret the comments you get. You know, you could look at it like every comment uh, represents a hundred listeners, or you could look at it like as I do. Okay, the people who are prompted to comment, especially if the comment seems very, very different from 
what you had thought. You know, sometimes the thing prompting them is that they just have a very, you know, firm stance on the use of uh, bitumen in building <laughs> materials or whatever. Over the years, I've always liked the I've always liked to be able to have a forum for really good listener interaction. It's funny because when I was with NPR, they started doing comments on just npr.org. And it was great for a while. And then it really turned ungreat. And I think they turned it off. Then I went over to Slate and we built Facebook pages for every show. And the idea was, well, because people won't be anonymous as they were on a web page, they have to put their face to it. You'll get better, more honest, more uh, constructive commenting. And it was absolutely true for a while until it very much wasn't. And now I'm on Reddit. And Reddit is the place for really constructive commenting. I, I'm sure that half my audience has never been on Reddit or been on Reddit one or two times or wouldn't even know, okay, here the gist is on Reddit. I don't know what this means. But uh, that's that's the forum for constructive comments these days. Nice. I was just thinking, we were talking about the end credits and how you you know tip your hat to your colleagues. So you sign off from every episode saying "umperu deeperu duperu." Do I remember correctly that you actually got that? That is it a saying from a listener? I don't even remember what it means. I, I my memory is that it has something to do with like like an Argentinian or a Peruvian chicken pecker. Am I even close? What? Very close. You're like one country off. You're one animal off. And if by pecker you mean beak, you're at the wrong end of the animal. <laughs> <laughs> but by Pecker, you mean Pecker, you're right. <laughs> yeah. Did you get that from a listener? I went to the country of Turkey. I found out that they were much, much, much less entranced by the fact that Turkey is an animal and a country in English. They hated it. They didn't want to know. And then a listener who spoke Portuguese said it goes beyond that. Peru means the country of Peru. It also means the bird, the turkey. And Peru is slang for a penis. I'm like, and so I engaged with the listener and I said, wait, so what would a Peruvian turkey penis be? And he said, oh, it would probably be something like um peru de peru du peru. So I was in Portugal and I said, hey, if I said to you, um peru de peru du peru, do you know what this would mean? And they said, no, we have no idea what this would mean. And then I worked it out and they were like, well, Peru does mean this and Peru does mean that, but no one would say Peruvian turkey penis. I'm like, is that because turkeys don't have penises? Like, and they all said, I have no idea about the existence or non-existence of the penis of the turkey. It's just that we wouldn't say it like that. It's so good. Yeah, it's good to have a slogan. In vito veritas or <laughs> very lux or <laughs> um peru de peru du peru. That's so awesome. So I'm kind of tempted to ask you what is probably a really boring workload management question because it just blows my mind that in addition to prepping for an interview and engaging with listeners and readers you also work on you know like a two or three minute lead-in for like the, the 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 intro and then you have the five to ten minute you say seven minute spiel to wrap up most episodes then of course you do all the pr for the show and then sometimes you make time to countenance fools like me. And you're also like a real person with like a family and like a life. And apparently you wake up and go to the gym sometimes. So I'm just kind of blown away by how you manage your workload. Like it just kind of doesn't make sense that the gist should come out every day. But I, I in listening to you today, I, I kind of have a sense for how the sausage is made. 
I think I want to ask you a what if question. Okay. Because you're you're hardly allergic to what ifs. You 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 wrote a rollicking book of sports what ifs. Okay. Uh, here's my what if question for you. What if some kind benefactor rang you up and said, "Hey, Pesca, love your show." It seems like a bit much. I I, I want to help you to create some margin in your life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So here's my proposal. You only create three shows per week. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to compensate you by paying you the, the 40% that you lose. I'll make it an even 50% just thinking about how ad revenue might pay out over time. Like, I guess I'm trying to get a sense of like, do you do it five days a week because you love it and because you, you have, or, or is it because you love it and you got, you know, a mortgage, you want to put kids through college, you want to go to Turkey and Portugal to talk about chicken penises with strangers. <laughs> I want like, to, I have to, it's fact, it's my life's mission. Yeah. Yeah. Like, would you, would you take that for a year or two to, to make three shows and have more margin in your life or are you just in this rhythm and this is the rhythm it has to be? It's your NPR work management style and that's just how you roll? I, I have a high metabolism. Well, first of all, let me ask you, do you know such a guy? Is this an actual offer? <laughs> I wish I did. Okay. So since it's not an actual offer, absolutely yeah. not. I'm doing it for the people. I love to do it. <laughs> but if the offer is, hey, would you pay, get paid slightly more to work less? Um, Yes. But no, no, it's not a real offer. Then I need to do it. <laughs> my greatest skill is my metabolism for this content. So it's a little like the AJ Liebling. I can write anything who I'm a better writer than anyone who's faster and I'm a faster writer than anyone who's better. I definitely am a faster podcaster than anyone who's better. I don't know if I'm a better (laughs) podcaster than anyone who's faster. Maybe, I don't know, but I'm somewhere in there. And so I really can come out with this amount of uh, content, and so I do. And the economics of it are such that if you have five or six shows as we do a week, that's more spots for advertising. And it's an advertising supported medium. We did start a subscription service because you have to augment these days. Um, But yeah, the realities of the economics favor this show that I'm able to do. I mean, if I did have two fewer days, I would use it trying to write stuff or trying to you know craft the content a little bit more finely every once in a while you put up a show and this is true for everyone in broadcasting it's not that it's perfect it's that it's done and that's why you put the show up and since there is a show every day every day there will be uh, an amount of audio filed there will be audio waves coming out of your headphones that is my promise to you not every day is the best. So maybe if there were two more days a week, I could hold things back. I could say, all right, I think that this spiel isn't getting there. I could work two days on a different spiel. But who knows? Maybe I'd be wrong. And the spiels that I thought weren't getting there, they actually benefited from the timeliness and the um, exigencies of, of the time frame. Nice. I love that answer. With your audience in mind, what do you wish more people knew about the work of making a daily podcast the way that you do it? 
I don't know. I mean, I don't know what they know. I know that friends of mine, uh, people who've worked for NPR or other broadcasters who come in, but especially people who work for NPR, some of the best people to work for NPR, I have asked them to guest host my show, and they do say, my friend Robert Smith, who is has an excellent broadcaster and works really hard and can crank out content, did say, I don't know how you do it. So that's I take that as a good compliment. It's fine if people don't know that. I'm proud of that, I would say. You should be proud of it, man. What you create on a daily basis is it's so compelling. And, and, and I'm so grateful to have you here. And that should be enough. But like you, I love stories. So I hope that you could share with me to help to drive this train into the station two stories, one of a professional triumph and one of a professional failure. Let's start with the failure so that we can end on a note of triumph. <laughs> The failure, eh? Sure. Huh. I knew I knew this was coming, and I was debating how minuscule to get or how how grand to get. Uh-huh. So I'll tell you this. Okay. I don't know if it's a failure. It's just a story. When I was working for WNYC and maybe on the media, I had a friend who was um, on the staff of Chuck Schumer. And I was duly interested in media and politics. And I met with Chuck Schumer, and I was not offered a job to be his press person. But it seemed pretty clear that if I was interested in the job, they'd be interested in my being interested in the job. So it was a crossroads. Do I want to be the press person for Schumer? And this seemed exciting to me at the time. This seemed challenging. So much about this, I, and I think that back then, NPR's pay was terrible. So even though the pay working for a senator is not great, I think it would have been better. But I said to myself, you know, if I go into that realm, I won't be a media person anymore. And it will, I think perhaps either stain or sully, or it won't be uh, the clear divide that I think there needs to be this clear divide. Once I go to the political advocacy side, it'd be very hard for me to come back to the media side, which is in my bones and what I hold very true. So that was the deciding factor, that to go to the other side, there wouldn't be this revolving door. And I have to tell you, if you look at what's happened in the last 10 years, that was totally wrong. Pod Save America, I would have been much more marketable in the vast majority of media that's out there. Jen Psaki getting hired by MSNBC and the Pod Save America crew, and not just them. I think everyone is hiring former political operatives without any sort of care in the world. So that's a failure. I failed to see that. I don't know if it was that I failed to take the job, but I failed to see that happening. I over-indexed for the sanctity of uh, (laughs) the purity of media being separate from politics. Yeah. Yeah. I feel you. Give me the success. I didn't have to work for Chuck Schumer. (laughs) (laughs) No, I like Chuck Schumer. That's just a good joke. Yeah, it is. (sighs) Yeah. I think that when I came back, there was uh, an interregnum period between the slate period and the current period. And I did an interview with um, Jordan Klepper and John Kasich, who had a podcast out. It was just great. It was just, I loved 
talk. I was at the height of my interest. It was one of the first things I did. I wrote my wife a note because she really, really helped me. I said, thank you. This is, I think, to some extent, what I was put on the earth to do. It was a good interview. It was a fine interview. It didn't change anything for me. But just being able to do it again, it was nice to take a step aside from the uh, daily, weekly grind and say, this is an important thing to me. So I, I consider that a triumph. It was a total triumph. For sure. And I should say that when I saw the gist pop back into my podcast feed, I was thrilled. It was so great to have you back on here. Now to wrap this thing up, I'd like to give you the opportunity to recommend to our listeners something, anything that somehow informs or influences what you do for a living. So any recommendation? Yep. Up to you. Yeah. I don't know if I've ever told anyone this, but when I was working for NPR and I was a sports reporter, I did hint that it wasn't the most challenging work in the world. Uh, I loved it. I love many aspects of it. I love my colleagues and being on NPR and the audience and the places I got to go. But even though I was one of the more um, industrious, uh, productive reporters there, they would rank well, not too authoritatively, but they would generally let you know how many pieces you did or how many minutes of programming. And I'd always be near the top. And there was a little bit of an advantage because when it's Super Bowl week or Final Four week, you get on the air a lot. Anyway, when I was a little bored, I read Dan Okrent put together the collective writings of Red Smith, the classic New York sports columnist. And I love that book. But more to the point, I highlighted phrases and passages from that book, and so as to not become bored on the air or with my job, I vowed to work these passages into my reporting. And I did, <laughs> but just knowing that I was using a turn of phrase that Red Smith used as an echo across the ages that no one but me knew about was delightful. So I would recommend Dan Okrent's collective writings of the sports writer Red Smith. Well, you, sir, are delightful. In fact, Mike Pesca, I just, I think you're the cat's pajamas. Frankly, I reckon you're an American treasure. It has been a real pleasure, an honor, really, to be in conversation with you. And even more so, I just want to thank you for working day after day, not just to combat bullshit, but to be a model for good honest, earnest, responsibly provocative conversation. Mike Pesca, thank you for being on For a Living. Well, thank you so much for having me. I know maybe we will reveal to the audience there are some technical issues at the end, but if the audience doesn't know what we're talking about, it means you are a masterful, masterful editor. So thank you, Daniel. So... If you did notice the absolute disaster at the end of our conversation, then, per the pronouncement of my podcast hero, Mike Pesca, I am the master of editing. That feels good. The master of editing. I'll take it. And there you have it, my friends, my conversation with my North Star of interviewing. He's pretty amazing. Am I right? As always, I invite you to follow this show wherever you get podcasts. Maybe leave a review. And if you dig what you hear, 
please tell a friend or two. And if for a living means something to you and you have the means to give a few, please head over to patreon.com slash for a living and show your support. Now, those of you who have been supporting me for a while, those of you who are regular listeners, you know that each season of For a Living is eight episodes. This is the eighth episode. So you may reckon that this is the end of season 10, that this is it for a while. Well, you reckoned all wrong because next week I will be joined in conversation by my former student, who is also my psychotherapist. <laughs> imagine me threading that needle. You don't even have to imagine it. All you have to do is wait two weeks and tune in. Also, in that episode, I have an important announcement to make. So be there for that. And as the great ones say, umperu deeperu duperu, in vino veritas, bono vox, but non zoom pisces. All right, I'll be back at y'all soon. <laughs>